So welcome to the BWD Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. Today we're talking to Paul Trugill, who's a partner at Knight's Solicitors, and we're going to be discussing the role of a solicitor in the M&A process. Paul, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, thanks, David. So, as you said, my name is Paul Trudgill. I'm one of the partners in the corporate team in the Sheffield office of Knights. I've been uh, working in the legal industry for more than 30 years now, and more than 20 years of that, I've been in mergers and acquisitions. Okay. And we first worked together approximately 19 years ago when I was buying my first IFA firm and you were representing the bank because we were borrowing money. Correct. And that, uh, I was was considering this earlier, that was, from my perspective, a bit of a disaster of a purchase, a purchase that if we did it again, I wouldn't. Mm. And there there were several reasons for that. One was um, it was our first acquisition. Yeah. We hadn't done it before. We were very, very inexperienced. Um, the people we were buying from weren't particularly nice people, mm. and and we were just naive. Yeah. And I remember we we bought the company, and the second day we went in there and realised that that day payroll was due, and we hadn't even considered payroll. <laughs> so we we'd had one day of income yeah. from the business. And thirty thousand pounds in salaries on the second day was going out. Walked out of the door, mm. and that immediately put us under cash flow pressure. Yeah, a really basic error. Um, but you're so involved in the process that you, there are some things that you miss. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have good advisors. Yeah, at that stage, um, n- either from the mergers and acquisitions perspective, i.e., my role. Yeah. Um, or a an experienced lawyer who'd done this day in, day in day out like you do, yeah. Saying these are the things to be aware of, yeah. So that this is why this is quite important for people both wanting to sell and buy businesses. I think it'll be a, a really useful twenty odd minutes mm-hmm. of their time to listen to. So if we start with my first question, which is at what stage should a selling business get their lawyer involved? Yeah, I mean, I would like to say get your lawyer involved as early as possible in the process. Certainly once you've made the decision that you're going to explore opportunities for disposal. And and the reason I say that is because very often during the process, uh, lawyers get involved later on at a point at which issues during the course of what might be due diligence or negotiations then become a problem. If a lawyer is engaged early, we can help. We describe it as grooming the business for sale so that you're presenting it in the best possible light, a bit like if you're selling a house and you do the garden and you paint the woodwork and you make everything look fresh and clean. And the reason for that is twofold. One is it gives the buyer confidence in the business they're acquiring so they will know that when they walk in on day one there won't be problems they'll have to address straight away it probably means that they're unlikely to have been problems in the past which could present themselves as issues of risk for the buyer and it will mean it's easier for the buyer to integrate that business within their existing business okay so so if we talk about the the process the, 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 the whole whole process. So I'm, I'm running my IFA business and either I or I and my, and my directors believe we want to exit for whatever reason. Yeah. 
And it's in a very interesting time now to be considering that for loads of reasons, one being a potential government change next year, mm -hmm. potential tax changes, and whether anybody wants to try and do something now rather than yeah. after a potential CGT uh, tax change. So we've made the decision and we want to go ahead. So, so what is the process from a legal perspective? Um, I would like to think that they contact, first of all, somebody like me. Yeah. Um, uh, whereby our department is experienced in mergers and acquisitions, and that's what we do for a living. And we advise them to appoint a solicitor, i.e. you. Yep. What, what is then the process? Yeah, so from there, obviously there are kind of several work streams that are probably working in tandem at that point, depending on the advisors that you engage. So you'll be working on the, the M&A piece itself, so the information memorandum and you know, and identifying potential acquirers. They ought to get a tax advisor on board as well to give them some advice around structuring the transaction at the appropriate point. And then the legal the legal advisors are there really, as I said before, to kind of help through the process of ensuring the business is presented as best as it possibly can be to a potential acquirer and also to advise once, if you like, commercial terms have been agreed, advise on the heads of terms, which is a document which sets out commercially what the transaction will look like, so what the price will be, how it will be paid, what are the key provisions are required by the buyer and the seller in relation to the commercial elements. And that heads of terms document, if you like, is the firing of the starting block uh, on the, the transaction process itself, the formal transaction process. After that, it would go into a period of due diligence, and that would be legal due diligence, where the buyer's lawyer would uh, raise a series of questions around all aspects of the business. There will be financial due diligence, potentially tax due diligence, depending on the size and complexity of the business. Tax due diligence and financial due diligence would be conducted by an accountant on behalf of the buyer. So I'm really focused on the legal side of that. And the kind of questions that you would expect a legal due diligence questionnaire to cover would be things like your regulatory and compliance history, particularly in the kind of sector that we're talking about any issues around employees, any issues around uh, the share history of the company, have there been transactions involving shareholders already in the past coming and going, so we need to make sure they've all been done correctly, uh, the major contracts that you might have with suppliers. And uh, an element of the, the commercial due diligence or financial due diligence will probably be around customer concentration to see whether or not a significant element of, of the target business either comes from a certain number of customers or in certain sectors, because those could be items of risk for the buyer to be to be concerned about. So, so out of interest, um, we, we, there, are, there tend to be three parties, at, at least two, potentially three, I suppose potentially more, seller, buyer, yep. potentially lender. Potentially funder, yeah. Uh, funder, which, w as a percentage, where would you say you normally end up sitting? W w do you get brought, brought, brought in by buyers? Or yeah, tend to I mean, I've sat on every side of the table, uh, actually. Uh, as you mentioned in your transaction, I was acting for the, for the funder. I've acted for acquirers of business. But I would say probably the majority of the work I do is acting for sellers, uh, selling their businesses. Okay. And at, at what stage do you first experience the buyers? So, so you're obviously doing a lot of work initially um, for the sellers. Yep. At some stage, you've all got to get around a table. Yeah. And I, I assume that's at the 
sell uh, share purchase agreement. Yeah, that's right. So generally, the, the the process will be we've signed heads of terms. So we've now got we've shaken hands, if you like, on a deal. That's commercially where w- the the terms are set, and then we move into the transaction process. Initially, due diligence. Generally speaking, buyers these days tend to wait for the outcome of due diligence before they then produce the major transaction document, which is the sale and purchase agreement. And that's the document which sets out not just the sort of commercial terms of the the price and structure and consideration, but it also includes those provisions which the buyer says they need to protect them from potential pre-transaction risks there may be in the business. Okay. So have you you kind of got to a stage where you've sat sat in the room to talk about the share purchase agreement and you're first exposed to the purchases. Yeah. Have you come across instances where you get bad feelings, where, you know, are you making judgments at that time about the type of business that's buying the business you're representing? Yeah. Or or, or is that kind of done and dusted by then and they're all... That you know they're all in a nice place together, and if things were going to fall down, they've they've already fallen down. I think it would be unusual for the lawyer to 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 spend a lot of time looking at the buying business if that lawyer is acting for the seller. I think that's probably something that would have, if you like, that almost a due diligence on the buyer would be something that we would expect to have been done before reaching heads of term stage. So I guess you guys will certainly have. Uh, because given your market experience and and so on, you probably have a a good idea who the the genuine acquirers are from you know the tire kickers, so so to speak. So for us, yeah, you know, most of our relationship is direct with the buyer's lawyer, and you can tell a lot about a buyer by the lawyers they engage in many ways. Because if you're dealing with a serious firm of lawyers who obviously will come at a cost, then you know that you're in a process where you've got a buyer who's either an experienced acquirer or understands that they need good advice. And both of those things are kind of green flags, really, in a transaction. Okay. So you're now in the room. Um, Everybody's together. After that stage, uh, when when you're working through, I suppose, all all of the, the managing of the risks... Yep. Of the of both the, the sale and the purchase, what what percentage tend to go then to full? Everybody's happy that the money's been paid; uh, they've taken ownership. What percentage go to full sale, and what percentage drop at that stage? I would have said very few transactions fall over. Once they've got to heads of terms stage and we've, if you like, as I said, shaken hands on a deal, it's, I would have said, the exception that that transaction doesn't proceed to completion. It does happen over the course of the last 12 months. I've had a couple that have fallen over uh, for, for varying reasons, uh, but but I would say that's very much the exception because I think by the time you get to heads of term stage and once you're incurring lawyers, people know they're incurring cost. And so they wouldn't necessarily want to press that button on what could be a significant potential expenditure without being sure that that's a transaction they want to proceed to to conclusion. Obviously, something can happen. Something can come out of the woodwork during due diligence or as a result of some other kind of uh, event, which means that for whatever reason, the buyer can't complete or indeed the seller decides now is not the right time for me to complete and people do walk away but i would have said it's 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 the exception rather than the rule okay so so would you describe an, an spa as a a a risk management document 
Yeah, I would call it a risk allocation document, actually, okay. in, in many ways, because there are, generally speaking, two sections to a sale and purchase agreement. You have the what we call the front end, which, as I said, sets out the terms of the deal. So what's the price that's being paid? How is it being paid? How will that price reflect any debt and cash in the business and working capital, for example? There'll be provisions around potential restriction, restrictive covenants on the sellers. That's the front end of the agreement. So the mechanical process of how do we transfer ownership from sellers to buyer. And then scheduled to that will be various um, sections which deal with the allocation of risk. And, and what they're there to do is to protect the buyer from something which has occurred prior to completion which they don't know about and therefore haven't been able to reflect in the purchase price. Right, so that they don't know about it because it's not been declared... And yeah. it's not being unearthed. Yes, generally speaking, it won't. Have, it won't have come out during the course of due diligence. Exactly, exactly that. And that's why due diligence is very often uh, a, a significant undertaking for both buyers and sellers, because there is nothing better than knowing exactly what it is you're you're buying from a buyer perspective. Because then you can ensure that the price you're paying is the price you're prepared to pay based on the information you've got. In addition to that then tax is a kind of separate matter. And it's generally accepted and understood that if a tax liability comes out of the woodwork post-deal, but which relates to a period in which the sellers were the owners, that should be the seller's responsibility to discharge that tax because they've had the benefit of the profits for the relevant period. So that's a separate uh, tax covenant or indemnity that would be in every share transaction, you would see. So the, the type of risks that we are managing or protecting against. Um, one is, is regulatory, I'm guessing. Yes, absolutely. Um, and although it, it hasn't happened recently, that there have been retrospective regulatory changes, yep. which is all good fun in the financial services industry. Um, contractual? Yeah, I mean, I think probably for financial services businesses, contractual risk is probably a little bit less significant than regulatory and compliance risks because generally speaking the businesses are relatively straightforward there aren't a lot of suppliers that uh, for which a, a contract could be material so for example you're not acquiring lots of raw materials yeah. uh, which could be significant or could carry a, a kind of risk and indeed you haven't got lots of customer contracts which themselves could give rise to a, a, a pro potential problem other than in connection with the quality of advice you, you provide for which you would carry professional indemnity insurance anyway and the buyer would understand how that process works. So it's, it's more compliance and, and regulation. There will be things around employees to make sure that you know, you've been, uh, all your employees have got proper contracts of employment, we're paying the proper wage, we're accounting properly for holiday pay, we haven't got any employee disputes or trade union issues probably unlikely in, in the context of these industries. It's those kind of things which the buyer wants to understand mm -hmm. because if there is a risk ar around those, it's a pre-completion risk that ought to be reflected in the document that that's the responsibility of the sellers rather than the buyer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and potentially a client client risk. Yeah. Um, well, that I mean, that's uh, I would say that's more a commercial risk than a than a legal risk. So, if you have got commercial risks around the relationships with key with key customers, then clearly the buyer needs to understand those because it doesn't want to pay a particular price for a business based on a recurring revenue if actually that relationship is potentially fractured, yeah. uh, because that could give rise to a significant loss of revenue potentially and therefore affect the price. Okay. Um, 
what percentage are um, there's been a few percentage questions Paul I apologize and there's, there's, <laughs> there'll be one more coming shortly but what percentage of deals in your experience fall down at due diligence yeah again relatively small I I would say because um, Generally, most people run relatively tight ships. I had a transaction which fell over during the course of this summer, and it fell over not because of a legal due diligence risk, but because of a commercial due diligence risk. There, there was very, very significant customer concentration. So almost 80% of the revenue of that business came from one customer, and the buyer said, this is, this is too much of a risk for us. We can't write a big check to you sellers when almost all your eggs are in one basket. You tell us the relationship is good, but we have we, we can only take your word for that. We we can't know whether that relationship is as strong as you said. So that was the kind of first reason the buyer expressed concern. The second one was because when they actually got into the guts of how the business operated, they realised it operated in a very different way to how their business operated, and they felt that integrating the two businesses would come at too much of a cost and effort that... It simply didn't it didn't make it work for commercially for them. So those are the kind of issues which do happen from time to time in relation to transactions, which cause them to fall over at due diligence. But if I try and remember the last time a transaction fell over as a result of a legal due diligence risk, then I'm having to cast my mind back more than ten years. Generally, if if you identify a a legal risk, there are ways and means in which you can you can address those. You can effectively the sellers can give an undertaking that they will meet that risk if it manifests itself. So we're not talking about a situation where there is a sum of money that has to be paid. There is a risk that an event might occur which would mean the sum of money would have to be paid. In those circumstances, the sellers could say, I'm satisfied that risk is, it's there, it's real, but it's more apparent than real, and therefore I'm prepared to take that risk. And if it, if it eventuality happens, I will write you a cheque for the amount of the, the liability which arises. Okay. So, share purchase agreement, um, we have warranties and we have indemnities. Yep. Um, to what value, and when I say value, I don't mean monetary, but how important are they? Are they worth the paper that they're written on? <laughs> um, yeah, I, mean, I, I suppose from a the typical deal is structured typically 50% upfront. Yep. So for a period of, of a year, 50% mm -hmm. is, is, is kept. Deferred. Yep. Uh, and then for the, in the second year, 25%. Um, so there is, there is comeback financially. Mm -hmm. How often do you have to get involved with warranties and, in, and indemnities? Yeah. So over the course of the last 20 years, I've had three warranty claims. That's it. So right. they're very, very rare. The, the reason they're rare is because the parties work very hard to make sure that everyone knows exactly what the issues are in the business. And so there are no surprises because that doesn't help anybody. You know, it doesn't help the buyer because they then have to consider whether or not they'll be able to recover the value of that claim for breach of warranty from the sellers and there are all sorts of limitation provisions we include to mitigate that risk for the sellers and it's no good for the seller either because they don't want to be having to write a cheque for you know proportion of the consideration and paying it back to the buyer and obviously everyone then incurs legal costs so a really important process is due diligence making that as comprehensive as possible 
So the idea is that anything which might be relevant, which might carry a risk or might be relevant to value or price is disclosed to the buyer as early as possible in the transaction so they're aware of it, so there are no surprises. It does happen sometimes. It's, as I said, it's very, very rare. It's not, uh, it's not impossible, certainly. Uh, <clears throat> and as I said, I've only had three in the course of the last 20 years. Indemnities are more more regularly invoked, largely because we've been through that process of due diligence, we've told the buyer, oh, we don't think we've complied with this potential provision around holiday pay, for example, or actually, yeah, there is a set of proceedings, we are being sued by an employee for unfair dismissal. The buyer will say, well, look, if you're being sued for unfair dismissal, you will write a cheque if that case comes to court and a judgment is given against you. In those circumstances, Everyone knows where they are. Everyone knows that if that risk materialises, then a cheque will be will be written. Uh, and so, uh, do we get involved in indemnities? We certainly get involved in negotiating them, trying to mitigate them on the part of sellers. How often are they invoked? It's very difficult to say. And largely, once an indemnity has been given, we don't usually get involved in that because the parties understand. You know, there's an event, we've talked about this, everyone knows where responsibility lies in relation to that indemnity risk and it's then a question of simply calculating the amount of payment and the sellers making payment for it. In transactions such as this, you do have that benefit of a retention of the consideration, a deferral of the consideration. And so in those circumstances, usually you would find that any liability on the part of the sellers would then be set off against the consideration which is to be paid by the buyer going forward. Restrictive covenants. Yeah. Which are very important. Yes. When particularly um, from the buyer's perspective, how enforceable are restrictive covenants? So, so the typical, I think the typical restrictive covenant is, um, I think it's now changed to you can't deal with a client slash customer for a period of time. Yeah. And I've recently seen examples of s- scenarios where uh individuals that have been within a business that's been acquired mm-hmm. have then once in receipt of full payment moved on and uh, all of a sudden all of their clients are are moving with them yeah so how, how enforceable I've, I've always thought that they that, that they aren't particularly enforceable but how, how enforceable are they yeah I think it's important to draw a distinction between restrictive covenants which are in an employment contract an employment context where it's much more difficult to enforce a restrictive covenant. Uh, Courts are reluctant to do that because they see it as a kind of unreasonable restraint of trade, generally speaking, and so you need to make the period as short as you reasonably can to give you that that protection because if you extend it for a significant period, a court is likely to, to find it unenforceable. So that's the first context. With the second context, which is a restrictive covenant given in the context of a transaction where the person giving the covenant is receiving a sum of money in consideration for giving that promise. And courts will enforce restrictive covenants in those circumstances. They're more likely to enforce them. But the similar issues apply, and so the court will still want to ensure that the period is reasonable in all the circumstances. And it's true to say that the period which a court will enforce is starting to reduce. So 
if you went back 10 or 15 years, you might see periods of restrictive covenant of three or four years. You're much more likely to see now periods of two years. And three, I would say, is is not necessarily the maximum, but certainly anything beyond three, uh, I think, carries a bit of risk for the person who wants to enforce it. That covenant will extend to soliciting and dealing with customers and with potential customers. It will also involve non-interference with suppliers and non-poaching of staff, generally key staff rather than just anyone who works for the business. So as, as always, those covenants need to be drafted very carefully because they will be interpreted against the person who seeks to rely on them. That's the kind of the principle of English common law. But uh, they are generally, uh, and in circumstances where the sellers receive consideration for them, they are enforceable. Yeah. I've always looked upon uh, an acquisition, particularly in financial services, similarly to two individuals that are meeting with a view to getting married. In, In that there has to be, you have to have very similar values. Um, you have to both want the same thing at the end of the day. You've got to give and take yep. as far as that process is concerned. And a lot of particularly sellers um, think that it's a negotiation game where they're trying to get the best possible deal out of the scenario. But unless it's balanced, it tends to go sour at some stage. And then when it does go, or if it does go sour, like in a lot of marriages, then it gets nasty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are arguments about who has the kids and, and all of that type of stuff, which I find is the same when businesses fall out post-acquisition at whatever stage that is. That could be three, four years yep. after the event. And, you know, the problem the problem wasn't three years after the event, the the problem was you didn't realise this person wasn't the right person for you. Mm. And it's got to be viewed in that, in my opinion, in, in that way. Mm. Um, examples of why deals fall down. Yeah, so I, I think there can be any number of reasons. And obviously each transaction is very specific to its individual circumstances. I I gave you an example a short while ago around a a transaction where the the buyer undertook commercial due diligence and discovered that it carried too much risk for them. I did a transaction where we were selling. It was in a different industry, but our business was performing all of the kind of metrics that the buyer wanted. In fact, the buyer said, nothing wrong with your business at all. We really like your business and want to do a deal with you. But they were backed by a private equity house. And in fact, their own business had not been performing well enough. And so their investor basically said, we are not backing you to acquire another business until you get your business in order and hitting the numbers that we want to hit. And so while that transaction actually came back and completed about six months after the the original uh, pause, it did pause, and not as a result of anything the sellers had done, or indeed anything with the selling business. It was as a result of the buyers, and I think largely trying to grow too quickly by making too many acquisitions too quickly over a short period of time, and without having ensured that they've all been properly integrated and were all kind of progressing in the way they needed to progress. Yes, happily, 
and for all the right reasons that the transaction came on board because it was strategically the right thing for both businesses to do to come together but nevertheless it took at least six months for them to turn the buying business round to enable the investor to have the confidence to say yeah i'll write a check for your transaction now i think it's a really good point particularly in current timing and the current climate whereby particularly private equity companies have invested in consolidation of IFA firms. The markets have stayed flat. There's been no growth as mm. far as markets are concerned. Mm. There have been a lot of challenges um, along the way in the last couple of years as far as integration is concerned. A lot of those businesses haven't really grown. Yeah. And from a, a private equity perspective, they're looking for high growth. Yeah. It's not a steady kind of no-thrills investment for them. Mm-hmm. They're looking for a very big return. And if over a period of two to three years, the growth has been 10%, yep. that's problematic mm-hmm. as far as that business is concerned. Yep. And that could mean that the private equity companies say, you need to start cutting costs dramatically very quickly. Yeah. And if you're being purchased by that firm that's all of a sudden cutting costs, your clients are moving into that environment, your staff are moving into that environment, mm-hmm. and they start wondering why it's difficult to, to, to transact business. Yeah. Because a few members of staff have been made redundant or they've not recruited new people, and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's a, a really timely point, mm. for, but for many other reasons as well. Yeah. So final, very quick question, Paul. You, your role not only is very technical, but you witness a seller going through the experience of selling maybe a lifetime's worth of work that they've invested possibly more in than they've invested their own children and the the stress that they must must go through so what is that like? What what is it? Yeah. You called it um, buyer seller f- fatigue. I think you called it. Yeah, that's right. So I, this is one of the reasons why I think it's really important at a very early stage for the sellers to to, to get the best advice they possibly can from people who've got real lived experience in this kind of work. So that might be from you from an MA perspective. It'll be someone like me from a legal perspective, someone with some financial expertise and tax, because the, 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 the sellers will only sell their business once and they need to make sure they have the best advice for that. It is stressful. It is demanding. They will continue to have a business they will need to run as well uh, because it's possible the transaction might not complete and they don't want to find at the end of the process they've let the business wander off in the wrong direction. And so they need to have confidence that that their advisors will help them through that process, ensure they don't experience seller fatigue, which is the situation you arrive at where the transaction's been going on for some time and the sellers can see the finishing line just in front of them and start to concede on points because they think that might unlock completion and get them over the line. Whereas in reality, a buyer might see that as a sign that they can squeeze and keep squeezing the sellers for more and more concessions to their advantage and to the seller's disadvantage. And your advisors have got to be able to advise you to make sure that you understand what it is that you're agreeing to and making that decision as to whether or it is in your best interests to do so. Brilliant. I think that's a good ending. Um, you guys are national, I we think. Are. We are, yes. I How think many offices? 
I've almost lost count. I think it's something like 19 or 20 offices now, so basically everywhere apart from in London. Fantastic. Um, Paul, thank you for taking valuable time out to help with this podcast. That was Paul Trugill from Knight Solicitors. Thank you very much. Thank you.